Chapter twelve of an essay on the principle of population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. An essay on the principle of population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter twelve. Mr. Godwin's conjecture concerning the indefinite prolongation of human life improper inference drawn from the effects of mental stimulants on the human frame illustrated in various instances conjecture is not founded on any indications in the past not to be considered as philosophical conjectures mr godwin's and mr condorcet's conjectures respecting the approach of man towards immortality on earth a curious instance of the inconsistency of scepticism Mr. Godwin's conjecture respecting the future approach of man towards immortality on earth seems to be rather oddly placed in a chapter which professes to remove the objection to his system of equality from the principle of population, unless he supposes the passion between the sexes to decrease faster than the duration of life increases, the earth would be more encumbered than ever. But leaving this difficulty to Mr. Godwin, let us examine a few of the appearances from which the probable immortality of man is inferred. To prove the power of the mind over the body, Mr. Godwin observes, How often do we find a piece of good news dissipating a distemper? How common is the remark that those accidents which are to the indolent a source of disease are forgotten and extirpated in the busy and active? I walk twenty miles in an indolent and half-determined temper, and am extremely fatigued. I walk twenty miles, full of ardour, and with a motive that engrosses my soul, and I come in as fresh and as alert as when I began my journey. Emotion excited by some unexpected word, by a letter that is delivered to us, occasions the most extraordinary revolutions in our frame, accelerates the circulation, causes the heart to palpitate the tongue to refuse its office, and has been known to occasion death by extreme anguish or extreme joy. There is nothing indeed of which the physician is more aware than of the power of the mind in assisting or reading convalescence. The instances here mentioned are chiefly instances of the effects of mental stimulants on the bodily frame. No person has ever for a moment doubted the near, though mysterious, connection of mind and body. But it is arguing totally without knowledge of the nature of stimulants to suppose either that they can be applied continually with equal strength, or, if they could be so applied, for a time, that they would not exhaust and wear out the subject. In some of the cases here noticed, the strength of the stimulants depends on its novelty and unexpectedness. Such a stimulant cannot, from its nature, be repeated often, with the same effect as it would by repetition lose that property which gives it its strength. In the other cases, the argument is from a small and partial effect, to a great and general effect, which will, in numberless instances, be found to be a very fallacious mode of reasoning. The busy and active man may, in some degree, counteract, or what is perhaps nearer the truth, may disregard those slight disorders of frame which fix the attention of a man who has nothing else to think of, but this does not tend to prove that activity of mind will enable a man to disregard a high fever, the smallpox, or the plague. 
the man who walks twenty miles with a motive that engrosses his soul does not attend to his slight fatigue of body when he comes in but double his motive and set him to walk another twenty miles quadruple it and let him start a third time and so on and the length of his walk will ultimately depend on muscle and not mind powell for a motive of ten guineas would have walked further probably than mr godwin for a motive of half a million a motive of uncommon power acting upon a frame of moderate strength would perhaps make the man kill himself by his exertions but it would not make him walk a hundred miles in twenty-four hours this statement of the case shows the fallacy of supposing that the person was really not at all tired in his first walk of twenty miles because he did not appear to be so or perhaps scarcely felt any fatigue himself the mind cannot fix its attention strongly on more than one object at once the twenty thousand pounds so engrossed his thoughts that he did not attend to any slight soreness of foot or stiffness of limb but had he been really as fresh and as alert as when he first set off he would be able to go the second twenty miles with as much ease as the first and so on the third etc which leads to a palpable absurdity when a horse of spirit is nearly half tired by the stimulus of the spur added to the proper management of the bit he may be put so much upon his middle that he would appear to a stander-by as fresh and as high-spirited as if he had not gone a mile nay probably the horse himself while in the heat and passion occasioned by the stimulus would not feel any fatigue but it would be strangely contrary to all reason and experience to argue from such an appearance that if the stimulus were continued the horse would never be tired the cry of a pack of hounds will make some horses after a journey of forty miles on the road appear as fresh and as lively as when they first set out were they then to be hunted no perceptible abatement would at first be felt by their riders in their strength and spirits but towards the end of a hard day the previous fatigue would have its full weight and effect and make them tire sooner when i have taken a long walk with my gun and met with no success i have frequently returned home feeling a considerable degree of uncomfortableness from fatigue another day perhaps going over nearly the same extent of ground with a good deal of sport i have come home fresh and alert the difference in the sensation of fatigue upon coming in on the different days may have been very striking but on the following mornings i have found no such difference i have not perceived that i was less stiff in limbs or less footsore on the morning after the day of the sport than on the other morning in all these cases stimulants upon the mind seem to act rather by taking off the attention from the bodily fatigue than by really and truly counteracting it if the energy of my mind had really counteracted the fatigue of my body why should i feel tired the next morning if the stimulus of the hounds had as completely overcome the fatigue of the journey in reality as it did in appearance why should the horse be tired sooner than if he had not gone the forty miles i happened to have a very bad fit of the toothache at the time i am writing this in the eagerness of composition i every now and then for a moment or two forget it yet i cannot help thinking that the process which causes the pain is still going forwards and that the nerves which carry the information of it to the brain are even during these moments demanding attention and room for their appropriate vibrations the multiplicity of vibrations of another kind may perhaps prevent their admission or overcome them for a time when admitted 
till a shoot of extraordinary energy puts all other vibrations to the rout, destroys the vividness of my argumentative conceptions, and rides triumphant in the brain. In this case, as in others, the mind seems to have little or no power in counteracting or curing the disorder, but merely possesses a power, if strongly excited, of fixing its attention on other subjects. I do not, however, mean to say that a sound and vigorous mind has no tendency whatever to keep the body in a similar state. So close and intimate is the union of mind and body that it would be highly extraordinary if they did not mutually assist each other's functions. But, perhaps, upon a comparison, the body has more effect upon the mind than the mind upon the body. The first object of the mind is to act as purveyor to the wants of the body. When these wants are completely satisfied, an active mind is indeed apt to wander further, to range over the fields of science, or sport in the regions of imagination, to fancy that it has shuffled off this mortal coil, and is seeking its kindred element. But all these efforts are like the vain exertions of the hare in the fable. The slowly moving tortoise, the body, never fails to overtake the mind, however widely and extensively it may have ranged, and the brightest and most energetic intellects, unwillingly as they may attend to the first or second summons, must ultimately yield the empire of the brain to the calls of hunger, or sink with the exhausted body in sleep. It seems as if one might say with certainty that if a medicine could be found to immortalize the body, there would be no fear of its not being accompanied by the immortality of the mind. But the immortality of the mind by no means seems to infer the immortality of the body. On the contrary, the greatest conceivable energy of mind would probably exhaust and destroy the strength of the body. A temperate vigor of mind appears to be favorable to health, but very great intellectual exertions tend rather, as has been often observed, to wear out the scabbard. Most of the instances which Mr. Godwin has brought to prove the power of the mind over the body, and the consequent probability of the immortality of man, are of this latter description, and could such stimulants be continually applied, instead of tending to immortalize, they would tend very rapidly to destroy the human frame. The probable increase of the voluntary power of man over his animal frame comes next under Mr. Godwin's consideration, and he concludes by saying that the voluntary power of some men, in this respect, is found to extend to various articles in which other men are impotent. But this is reasoning against an almost universal rule from a few exceptions, and these exceptions seem to be rather tricks than powers that may be exerted to any good purpose. I have never heard of any man who could regulate his pulse in a fever, and doubt much if any of the persons here alluded to have made the smallest perceptible progress in the regular correction of the disorders of their frames, and the consequent prolongation of their lives. Mr. Godwin says, Nothing can be more unphilosophical than to conclude that, because a certain species of power is beyond the train of our present observation, that it is beyond the limits of the human mind. I own my ideas of philosophy are in this respect widely different from Mr. Godwin's. The only distinction that I see between a philosophical conjecture and the assertions of the prophet Mr. Brothers is that one is founded upon indications arising from the train of our present observations, and the other has no foundation at all. I expect that great discoveries are yet to take place in all the branches of human science, particularly in physics 
but the moment we leave past experience as the foundation of our conjectures concerning the future and still more if our conjectures absolutely contradict past experience we are thrown upon a wide field of uncertainty and any one supposition is then just as good as another if a person were to tell me that men would ultimately have eyes and hands behind them as well as before them i should admit the usefulness of the addition but should give as a reason for my disbelief of it that i saw no indications whatever in the past from which i could infer the smallest probability of such a change if this be not allowed a valid objection all conjectures are alike and all equally philosophical i own it appears to me that in the train of our present observations there are no more genuine indications that man will become immortal upon earth than that he will have four eyes and four hands or that trees will grow horizontally instead of perpendicularly it will be said perhaps that many discoveries have already taken place in the world that were totally unforeseen and unexpected this i grant to be true but if a person had predicted these discoveries without being guided by any analogies or indications from past facts he would deserve the name of seer or prophet but not a philosopher the wonder that some of our modern discoveries would excite in the savage inhabitants of europe in the times of theseus and achilles proves but little persons almost entirely unacquainted with the powers of a machine cannot be expected to guess at its effects i am far from saying that we are at present by any means fully acquainted with the powers of the human mind but we certainly know more of this instrument than was known four thousand years ago and therefore though not to be called competent judges we are certainly much better able than savages to say what is or is not within its grasp a watch would strike a savage with as much surprise as a perpetual motion yet one is to us a most familiar piece of mechanism and the other has constantly eluded the efforts of the most acute intellects in many instances we are now able to perceive the causes which prevent an unlimited improvement in those inventions which seemed to promise fairly for it at first the original improvers of telescopes would probably think that as long as the size of the specula and the length of the tubes could be increased the powers and advantages of the instruments would increase but experience has since taught us that the smallness of the field the deficiency of light and the circumstance of the atmosphere being magnified prevent the beneficial results that were to be expected from telescopes of extraordinary size and power in many parts of knowledge man has been almost constantly making some progress in other parts his efforts have been invariably baffled the savage would not probably be able to guess at the cause of this mighty difference our further experience has given us some little insight into these causes and has therefore enabled us better to judge if not of what we are able to expect in the future at least of what we are not to expect which though negative is a very useful piece of information as the necessity of sleep seems rather to depend upon the body than the mind it does not appear how the improvement of the mind can tend very greatly to supersede this conspicuous infirmity a man who by great excitements on his mind is able to pass two or three nights without sleep proportionably exhausts the vigour of his body and this diminution of health and strength will soon disturb the operations of his understanding so that by these great efforts he appears to have made no real progress whatever in superseding the necessity of this species of rest 
there is certainly a sufficiently marked difference in the various characters of which we have some knowledge relative to the energies of their minds their benevolent pursuits etc to enable us to judge whether the operations of intellect have any decided effect in prolonging the duration of human life it is certain that no decided effect of this kind has yet been observed though no attention of any kind has ever produced such an effect as could be construed into the smallest semblance of an approach towards immortality yet of the two a certain attention to the body seems to have more effect in this respect than an attention to the mind the man who takes his temperate meals and his bodily exercise with scrupulous regularity will generally be found more healthy than the man who very deeply engaged in intellectual pursuits often forgets for a time these bodily cravings the citizen who has retired and whose ideas perhaps scarcely soar above or extend beyond his little garden puddling all the morning about his borders of box will perhaps live as long as the philosopher whose range of intellect is the most extensive and whose views are the clearest of any of his contemporaries it has been positively observed by those who have attended to the bills of mortality that women live longer upon an average than men and though i would not by any means say that their intellectual faculties are inferior yet i think it must be allowed that from their different education there are not so many women as men who are excited to vigorous mental exertion as in these and similar instances or to take a larger range as in the great diversity of characters that have existed during some thousand years no decided difference has been observed in the duration of human life from the operation of intellect the mortality of man on earth seems to be as completely established and exactly upon the same grounds as any one the most constant of the laws of nature an immediate act of power in the creator of the universe might indeed change one or all of these laws either suddenly or gradually but without some indications of such a change and such indications do not exist it is just as unphilosophical to suppose that the life of man may be prolonged beyond any assignable limits as to suppose that the attraction of the earth will gradually be changed into repulsion and that stones will ultimately rise instead of fall or that the earth will fly off at a certain period to some more genial and warmer sun the conclusion of this chapter presents us undoubtedly with a very beautiful and desirable picture but like some of the landscapes drawn from fancy and not imagined with truth it fails of that interest in the heart which nature and probability can alone give i cannot quit this subject without taking notice of these conjectures of mr godwin and mr condorcet concerning the indefinite prolongation of human life as a very curious instance of the longing of the soul after immortality both these gentlemen have rejected the light of revelation which absolutely promises eternal life in another state they have also rejected the light of natural religion which to the ablest intellects in all ages has indicated the future existence of the soul yet so congenial is the idea of immortality to the mind of man that they cannot consent entirely to throw it out of their systems after all their fastidious scepticisms concerning the only probable mode of immortality they introduce a species of immortality of their own not only completely contradictory to every law of philosophical probability but in itself in the highest degree narrow partial and unjust they suppose that all the great virtuous and exalted minds that have ever existed or that may exist for some thousands perhaps millions of years will be sunk in annihilation 
and that only a few beings not greater in number than can exist at once upon the earth will be ultimately crowned with immortality had such a tenet been advanced as a tenet of revelation i am very sure that all the enemies of religion and probably mr godwin and mr condorcet among the rest would have exhausted the whole force of their ridicule upon it as the most puerile the most absurd the poorest the most pitiful the most iniquitously unjust and consequently the most unworthy of the deity that the superstitious folly of man could invent what a strange and curious proof do these conjectures exhibit of the inconsistency of scepticism for it should be observed that there is a very striking and essential difference between believing an assertion which absolutely contradicts the most uniform experience and an assertion which contradicts nothing but is merely beyond the power of our present observation and knowledge so diversified are the natural objects around us so many instances of mighty power daily offer themselves to our views that we may fairly presume that there are many forms and operations of nature which we have not yet observed or which perhaps we are not capable of observing with our present confined inlets of knowledge the resurrection of a spiritual body from a natural body does not appear in itself a more wonderful instance of power than the germination of a blade of wheat from the grain or of an oak from an acorn could we conceive an intelligent being so placed as to be conversant only with inanimate or full-grown objects and never to have witnessed the process of vegetation and growth and were another being to show him two little pieces of matter a grain of wheat and an acorn to desire him to examine them to analyse them if he pleased and endeavour to find out their properties and essences and then to tell him that however trifling these little bits of matter might appear to him that they possess such curious powers of selection combination arrangement and almost of creation that upon being put into the ground they would choose amongst all the dirt and moisture that surrounded them those parts which best suited their purpose that they would collect and arrange these parts with wonderful taste judgment and execution and would rise up into beautiful forms scarcely in any respect analogous to the little bits of matter which were first placed in the earth i feel very little doubt that the imagineering being which i have supposed would hesitate more would require better authority and stronger proofs before he believed these strange assertions than if he had been told that a being of mighty power who had been the cause of all that he saw around him and of that existence of which he himself was conscious would by a great act of power upon the death and corruption of human creatures raise up the essence of thought in an incorporeal or at least invisible form to give it a happier existence in another state the only difference with regard to our own apprehensions that is not in favour of the latter assertion is that the first miracle we have repeatedly seen and the last miracle we have not seen i admit the full weight of this prodigious difference but surely no man can hesitate a moment in saying that putting revelation out of the question the resurrection of a spiritual body from a natural body which may be merely one among the many operations of nature which we cannot see is an event indefinitely more probable than the immortality of man on earth which is not only an event of which no symptoms or indications have yet appeared but is a positive contradiction to one of the most constant of the laws of nature that has ever come within the observation of man when we extend our view beyond this life it is evident that we can have no other guides than authority 
or conjecture, and perhaps, indeed, an obscure and undefined feeling. What I say here, therefore, does not appear to me in any respect to contradict what I have said before, when I observed that it was unphilosophical to expect any specific event that was not indicated by some kind of analogy in the past. In raging beyond the bourne from which no traveller returns, we must necessarily quit this rule. But with regards to events that may be expected to happen on earth, we can seldom quit it consistently with true philosophy. Analogy has, however, as I conceive, great latitude. For instance, man has discovered many of the laws of nature. Analogy seems to indicate that he will discover many more. But no analogy seems to indicate that he will discover a sixth sense, or a new species of power in the human mind, entirely beyond the train of our present observations. The powers of selection, combination, and transmutation, which every seed shows, are truly miraculous. Who can imagine that these wonderful faculties are contained in these little bits of matter? To me it appears much more philosophical to suppose that the mighty God of nature is present in full energy in all these operations. To this all-powerful being it would be equally easy to raise an oak without an acorn as with one. The preparatory process of putting seeds into the ground is merely ordained for the use of man, as one among the various other excitements necessary to awaken matter into mind. It is an idea that will be found consistent equally with the natural phenomena around us, with the various events of human life, and with the successive revelations of God to man. To suppose that the world is a mighty process for the creation and formation of mind, many vessels will necessarily come out of this great furnace in wrong shapes. These will be broken and thrown aside as useless, while those vessels whose forms are full of truth, grace, and loveliness will be wafted into happier situations, near the presence of the mighty Maker. I ought perhaps again to make an apology to my readers for dwelling so long upon a conjecture which many, I know, will think too absurd and improbable to require the least discussion. But if it be as improbable and as contrary to the genuine spirit of philosophy as I own I think it is, why should it not be shown to be so in a candid examination? A conjecture, however improbable on the first view of it, advanced by able and ingenious men, seems at least to deserve investigation. For my own part I feel no disinclination whatever to give that degree of credit to the opinion of the probable immortality of man on earth, which the appearances that can be brought in support of it deserve. Before we decide upon the utter improbability of such an event, it is but fair impartially to examine these appearances, and from such an examination I think we may conclude that we have rather less reason for supposing that the life of man may be indefinitely prolonged than that trees may be made to grow indefinitely high, or potatoes indefinitely large. Though Mr. Godwin advances the idea of the indefinite prolongation of human life merely as a conjecture, yet as he has produced some appearances which in his conception favour the supposition, he must certainly intend that these appearances should be examined, and this is all that I have meant to do. End of chapter 12 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards